We are uh, this morning starting our next series, and we are going through the book of Romans. And I don't know, maybe this one will take us three years. We'll see. But we're in no hurry. Uh, we'll just work through uh, as God leads us and, uh, and, and make sure we uh, just nourish ourselves from this beautiful, beautiful book. Um, so today we, bring the, we, we begin this uh, particular series. If you um, have your, your um, handout or your, note, your bulletin, what do you call it? Good grief. Your bulletin, take that out, and your handout is inside there. And uh, lots of fill-in-the-blanks there. This is that Sunday where we just kind of set the table for where we're going with the series. And uh, be fairly, it'll be fairly quick this morning, but we just want to get a sense of uh, what is happening uh, in and around this region, who's writing it when, and all the rest. So we get our bearings so that the message within makes, makes some sense. Uh, it would be fair to say that Romans is the Apostle Paul's magnum opus. Uh, it even has sort of prominence of placement in the scripture of his 13 letters, it is the first one given, and it is certainly uh, the longest. And Romans is one of those books that has been given just many superlatives. Um, some have even called it arguably the most influential book in Christian history, which is kind of fascinating to think about. Uh, another theologian uh, made this comment, if the Christian faith only had three books, the book of Genesis the Gospel of John, and the letter to the Romans, the Christian faith could continue. So we kind of get a sense of the weightiness and the significance of this particular book. I think the book of Romans should pretty much come with a warning label because it has the ability and has sort of a track record of changing people's lives. And I want to kind of look at three um, prominent figures whose lives were changed profoundly uh, by the book of Romans, and they therefore had a profound impact upon the church because of that change. So we're going to look at three of them. The first one, I'll give you a hint, we're going back to the fourth century to consider a saint. Uh, and the pastor is smirking a little bit, so you got any ideas who we might be talking about here? St. Augustine. St. Augustine was radically changed by the book of Romans. I don't know how much you know about his story, but he grew up in a home where his dad was not a believer, and his mother was. Her name was Monica, and she so longed for her very bright son uh, to come to know the Lord, but he really rejected her fairly simplistic faith. And he went looking to, for all kinds of other philosophies around to sort of scratch his intellectual interest, and even more than that, he, he chased pleasures, and he, um, and he really chased sort of these philosophies and and on higher academia, not so much just out of a love of knowledge, but because he loved the glory it would bring to him. So he pushed in for these kinds of positions. And ultimately, he found a lot of these philosophies that he was chasing around to be lacking. And one day, he heard the voice of a child uh, in the background in sort of a sing-songy voice say, take up and read, take up and read. And so he picked up the scriptures in front of him and sort of put his finger on the first passage that came, to, that came into view, which, by the way, is a bad way to, you know, strategy for Bible reading. Don't, don't do that. But God used it anyways. And the passage that he came upon was Romans 13, 34, which said this, Let us behave decently, as in the daytime, 
not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. So Romans profoundly changed St. Augustine's life. It was at that point that he converted to Christianity. Uh, I'll give you uh, another fellow here. We'll skip forward about a thousand years or more. Uh, I'll even give you this fellow's initials, ML. Think you know who it might be? Who do you got? Martin Luther. You guys are a sharp group. Martin Luther was a German monk who was uh, really a fine, upstanding man trying to live righteously before the Lord and a very good moral guy, but he was also inwardly pretty grouchy towards the Lord because of this high standard of righteousness that he knew God had for us, and yet his inability to to make it or to hit it or to get there through his own efforts. And so this made him a really unhappy uh, sort of fellow. And then he finally came upon upon a passage in Romans chapter 1, verse 17, which says, For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. And it was this phrase that really pierced Martin Luther's heart, and he realized that the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church is wrong. We've been trying to earn salvation through works, but in reality, the righteousness of God comes to us by faith. It is a given righteousness, not an earned righteousness. And this passage changed his life launched the Protestant Reformation, of which we, a tradition we continue in today. I'll give you a third figure. He could have been buddies with Martin Luther, at least they thought very similarly. And uh, I'll give you, the, give you uh, another hint here. There is a, a cartoon figure that is uh, drawn after this guy. You got it? Who do you think? Calvin. Calvin. There you go, John Calvin. Frenchman, ministered in Geneva, Switzerland. Uh, deeply impacted by the book of Romans. And he, uh, he said this about it. He said, uh, the entrance to all the most hidden treasures of scripture, the subject of these chapters may be stated thus, man's only righteousness is through the mercy of God in Christ, which being offered by the gospel is apprehended by faith. So three pretty significant figures here who were profoundly changed by the book of Romans and each who profoundly changed the life of the church, essentially forming what we, we know today and what we practice today. So a question I would ask you to consider is this. Why has, it had, why has Romans had such an impact? And the answer I would provide for my own question that I put in front of you is because it is a summary, a thorough summary of the gospel itself. And the gospel has power. It is a summary and an explanation of the gospel. Uh, Oftentimes when we're looking at a book, a new book, we're starting a new series, we kind of look for what's the main theme in this thing. And Romans is kind of a tough one on that because you find a bunch of themes. And then in reality, you take one more step back, bird's eye view, and what you actually find is the theme is the gospel itself. That is what is thread through the book from beginning to end. And so what we find in this is, why mankind needs the gospel, what the gospel accomplishes for us, 
And it also shows the continual outworking of the gospel in our everyday lives. Uh, and this, this sort of a, a theme or an understanding of the book has led some people to call it uh, the gospel according to Paul. So let's go through our notes here. I know you're eager to start filling in those blanks. Nothing like a sense of progress when you start putting words down. That helps you all, I know. So who's the author? It's the Apostle Paul. Cat's out of the bag. Uh, And there is really no respectable scholar who even tries to challenge this. It's basically universally accepted. Um, The date. uh, Again, typically recognized right about AD 57. Uh, And it's interesting. It actually seems that Paul is writing from the city of Corinth where he has just completed taking up a collection for the poor believers in Jerusalem. And he's, going, he's ready to deliver that collection to them, uh, but he's, it's, we're told that he stayed three months in Greece. And so while he's there in Corinth, uh, we believe he is writing this letter at that particular, uh, that particular time and place. And in there, he, in Acts 20, it, we, he tells us that he's staying there, and he tells us of his desire uh, to go to Rome. But the letter basically is written to sort of pave the way for his visit, kind of putting them on notice, I'm coming coming your way. The letter also is carried by a woman named Phoebe. And she's a really interesting uh, figure in the scriptures. Uh, In Acts, or excuse me, see I got Acts on the brain now. Bob, you did that to me. Romans 16, she's mentioned here specifically, 16.1, Paul says, I, uh, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, and then depending on your translation, either a servant or a deacon in the church of Centuria. And this is an, kind of an interesting word thing going on here. The Greek word behind this is uh, diakonos, and it means servant, uh, but sometimes it's translated to correspond to an office of a servant. And you might think about it like this. We could say that somebody presided over a meeting, over a meeting, or we, we could also refer to the office of that person as the president. So you can see how the function in an office can sort of come from the same word. And that's what we find in this, this word diakonos. So she is at least a faithful servant in this church in Centuria. But I think the 2011 version of the NIV did a good job to translate this as deacon. She is an official deacon, a leader in the church. And that kind of helps us to understand too why she is uh, given the honor and the charge of carrying this letter to the Romans and why Paul said and commends her to them. So that's kind of cool because sometimes people will look at Christianity and say, you know, doesn't always seem to be too kind to women. It's sexist, it's whatever. Actually, that's not true. Christianity has a history of treating women with great dignity and value and worth and honor in contrast to a culture and a world that did not at the time. So Phoebe is just one more example of that. Recipients of the letter? Well, the church in Rome. But what do we, want, what do we know about this church? What was its composition? It's mostly a Gentile uh, church, mostly Gentiles there. There, are, uh, there is sort of a Jewish remnant or a Jewish minority with, uh, within the church, but it's predominantly Gentile. Um, this is a congregation, interestingly enough, that Paul did not plant. He didn't start this church. He's never visited this church. He doesn't really know too many people uh, in this church. It's not there by his effort. 
more than likely, this church emerged from those who were at Pentecost in Jerusalem when the Holy Spirit was poured out. They became Christians, traveled back to Rome, taking the gospel with them, and uh, that's how the church was likely started. And it seems that it was helped along by a couple named Priscilla and Aquila. Does that name sound familiar to you? They were house church leaders in Rome, and they were part of developing this sort of young and -and up-and-coming church, having a ministry very similar to Bob and Sarah's ministry in Senegal, uh, helping young believers just kind of get up and get started. But the church grew and developed quickly. Um, One thing that's interesting about this pair, Priscilla and Aquila, is that they actually, there was an event in Rome where Claudius, the emperor, tried to expel the Jews, all of the Jews from the region. And because of that, Priscilla and Aquila left and they went to Greece and specifically Corinth where they met the Apostle Paul. So you can imagine the frustration of sort of being pushed out of the area, but instead God was at work to bring them to the Apostle Paul and they're able to fill him in on what's happening in the region and specifically in the church. So we see this in Acts um, 18, uh, 1 through 4. It says, After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath, he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. And so, again, this allows Paul to get an understanding of what's happening in Rome. He's wanted to go there for a long time, but this helps to inform the letter that he is is writing right here. And I just want to draw out a bit of application on this that I think is really encouraging. I can imagine Aquila and Priscilla being really frustrated and disappointed. Lord, we're, we're, we're helping this church along. We brought the gospel back from Jerusalem to here. Uh, we're, we're planting this church. We're helping it along. And, and we get booted out? Why not help us out, Lord. And yet, we see that God is at work building his church, even when it look like, looks like they're getting derailed. Because they're able to inform Paul. Paul's able to write the letter, a letter that you and I benefit from today. God is at work building his church, even when it doesn't look like it. So what's the occasion here? What's the occasion? Uh, The book of of Romans is very similar to the book of Galatians, if you're familiar with it. Sometimes Galatians is called the the shortened version of Romans, but but actually there, there is some difference too. Both books are really geared towards protecting the integrity of the gospel. But in Galatians, Paul is sort of aiming at or confronting what we would call Judaizers. Those who have come into the church and are basically telling Gentile believers, actually, you have to obey the law. You have to obey the Mosaic law, uh, Sabbath, circumcision, food laws as a condition for salvation. And so in Galatians, Paul is confronting that legalism from these Judaizers. And in Romans, we might say uh, the sandal is on the other foot. Here he is confronting Gentiles uh, over what we might call something like Gentile pride. Um, Again, there's sort of this cultural thing going on in Rome at the time where we've got the emperor sort of 
uh, disparaging of Jews, trying to kick them out of the region. And there was also this kind of competitiveness, competitiveness just in the town overall. There was this, this thing called um, competition for honor, basically. And so that was sort of an undercurrent in the city. And you can see sort of these forces uh, colliding to basically create a kind of Gentile superiority, an indifference to their Jewish brethren, or, or even just kind of a, a sense of pride about themselves. And so Paul is confronting that. Uh, if you take your hand out and flip it over on the back, there's that paragraph right at the bottom in the box. And I think this is, this is just sort of a key summary of what we find really throughout the book. Paul seems to be showing how the gospel of Jesus creates one new family of God, made up of Jews and Gentiles who belong to him, not because of nationality or because of law-keeping, but rather they are all saved by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. So in any case, there just seems to be this great tension between Jew and Gentile in Rome, most likely gathering in separate homes even, sort of segregated in their worship. Uh, and and it's, although it is a huge population of people, over 50,000 in this, this town of a million people. So there's a strong Christian presence. But one of the things that happens, in fact, you, got, you probably know this from your history, in AD 64, Nero, kind of a hothead, we can call him that, decides he's going to persecute Christians. And so what he does is he sets fire to the town, ends up burning almost half of Rome, and the Christian community is so uh, prevalent and so strong, and he hates them so much that he places the blame on them. So that's something else that's, that's sort of, you can kind of see things heading that direction. So what's the purpose of the book? Really four of them here. We're going to hit these really quick. First of all, to prepare uh, the way for his upcoming visit. He wants them to know he's, on a, he's, he's intending to come to them. Secondly, to clearly proclaim the gospel to them. Third, to promote the unity of this diverse church and to bring oneness between Jew and Gentile here. And then fourth, really to show the practical implications of the gospel in all of life. Now, you might ask yourself the question, why does Paul feel the need to proclaim the gospel to a church filled with Christians? What's with that? Why isn't, isn't the gospel, after all, for those who are not yet saved? And the answer to that question is no. It is not just the unbelievers who need the gospel. The gospel is not just the way into salvation, it is the way of salvation. Uh, and I, I'll, I'll, I'll liken it uh, to this. The gospel is a little bit like the alphabet. A little bit like the alphabet. The alphabet is the basics, right? If you've got a kindergartner and they just started school, they're just learning letters. They're learning that these letters have a shape, that they have a name, they're learning to recognize them. They're learning that those letters make a sound, that you can put multiple letters together and make different sounds and make words and sentences and paragraphs and chapters and stories and whole books. But uh, in growing literacy, we don't ever leave the alphabet behind. We don't say, well, I, I got that then, but I don't need it now. 
Uh, as we continue on with words and sentences and paragraphs and eventually great books, the alphabet continues to be an essential piece of reading, whether you're reading Dickens or whether you're reading Dick and Jane, right? You keep with the alphabet. And like the alphabet, the gospel is the same kind of thing. It is the fundamentals. It is the building blocks. It is the way into faith, but it's not merely the beginning. It is also what we grow in in our literacy of faith. We don't leave it behind once it's learned. But like the letters of the alphabet, the gospel continues to spell out the meaning of our story with God. We start with it, but we stay with it as we grow in in depth of understanding of what God is doing with us. Uh, My son Aiden sent me a picture this past week. Um, I thought it was very funny. Uh, I don't always think whatever he sends me is funny. Sometimes I just think, you're a nerd, Aiden. And this, this is where he gets it from, of course. But this was a funny picture. Here he is outside of his hall, 16th grade. And what you can't see in the parentheses off to the side, it says, uh, what is it, first? The last first day. That's right, I couldn't remember. The last first day. And I, I thought that was a funny picture. And so here he is in this cheesy little thumb up, you know. So you guys know that both Aiden and Eleanor now are down at Biola, and they're both in the Tory Honors Program, where they... Part of the program is to read through the great books of history. So they're reading through the Iliad and the Odyssey and Plato and Dostoevsky and on and on. And you know what? This guy, even though this is his last first day of school, right, in 16th grade, he's not done with the alphabet, right? He's using it in these great books as they continue to discuss these things with their friends and grow in their knowledge and understanding and literacy. And it is exactly the same as it is with our faith. The gospel is the alphabet. As we move on and mature years later, whatever you're in 16th grade or 60th grade, you're not done with the gospel. It continues to inform your life of faith with God. We also see that... um, The gospel has living implications for us. And that's really what the final third of Paul's um, uh, book is really about. So here's sort of the layout. We'll break this up. Three parts. The first is this, guilt. And you'll notice that's about three or four chapters there. So if you come the next three, you know, four weeks and you think, man, Pastor Eric's just laying it on thick. It's heavy. That guy, did he get enough fly fishing in this summer or... Is he getting enough sleep or enough vitamin D? We're just following the contours of the text. And Paul starts off by showing us the universal human condition, which is that we are sinners in need of a Savior, every one of us. And the second part of the book, it moves to grace. And you will all be here for this. In this center part, we learn of the goodness of God. Uh, where Paul introduces the gospel and we see that there is a restoring of righteousness lost. God gives us righteousness. We don't earn it, but it is given to us. Uh, And finally, uh, the last one, got to be a G in order to alliterate so you remember it, gratitude, or rather the gospel life lived out. We live a particular kind of obedience and a particular kind of life in gratitude for what God has done for us in Christ. So a key word in the book uh, is this word righteousness, which means right standing with God. 
Uh, and it's sort of a, a word group. Uh, we might also include righteous, righteousness, just, justify. They all come from sort of the same root word. And there are 64 references to that in the book, or almost four every chapter. So that is a profoundly important thread that goes all the way through the book. Uh, The idea is this. Rebellion against God means we have lost our righteousness. In order to have peace with God, we must be righteous. So the million-dollar question is this. How do we become righteous? How do we become righteous? The key verse... um, it's actually right here in the first chapter, uh, Romans 1, 16 and 17. And we're going to look at that in depth next week. Uh, but I'll read it for you now and see if you hear it with a slightly better understanding now that we've kind of worked through some of the cultural issues in the church. For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. Hmm. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it was written, the righteous will live by faith. So that's really sort of the key verse setting up the book. Uh, Just about done here. The tone uh, and maybe some interesting features of the book. This is by far Paul's most formal book, most formal letter. It's the least personal, although... At the very end of the letter, he does quite a lot of name dropping. 26 names he references right at the end of the book in chapter 16. And half of them, interestingly, are Jewish and half of them are Gentile. You can see sort of the peacemaking and unity that Paul is trying to uh, cultivate within the church. There's one other little thing here that you might find interesting, or at least I did, and you got to travel with me. you got to you know, dance with the one who brung you, as Keith Payne would say. There's this interesting rhetorical device throughout the book called a diatribe. A diatribe. And what that is, is it's sort of an ancient style of rhetoric where a teacher tries to sort of make their point or persuade the student by presenting an imaginary dialogue, kind of a question and answer sort of thing. And we find an example of this in uh, Romans 6. So I'll just read you the first bit of it. Uh, Here it says, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? So you see, he's kind of imagined a question that somebody might ask. Well, wait a minute. If grace is such a good thing and we want more of it, then tell you what, how about I just live it up and sin as much as I want? Won't I get more grace then? So Paul takes the question as though they had posed it and then shoots it down. By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? So that's an example of a diatribe, and we'll see it throughout the book. Uh, Practically here, just last couple things. I want to encourage you to do something this week. And you can probably guess what it is, right? I want you to memorize. No, I'm just. (laughs) We'll see if you're still with me. I would like you to carve out one hour this week and to sit down and read the book through in one sitting. It will take you an hour, but it will only take you an hour. And this is the single best thing you can do to improve your grasp of God's word, which is to read big chunks in one sitting. This was a letter meant to be read. 
It wasn't meant to be dissected and turned into an autopsy. It was meant to be read from beginning to end. If you want to have a good grasp of it for this series, take an hour this week and read it through.